Welcome to Ms. Interpreted, her podcast of public relations and strategic communications, demystified by Kelly Fletcher and Fletcher Marketing PR. But once you get to any meaningful scale, the number one job of being an entrepreneur or a CEO is communicating ideas, boiling down what's happening in the world and coming up with kind of a way to explain it and a, a way to position your company to be relevant. Welcome listeners to the Misinterpreted podcast. I'm Kelly Fletcher, CEO of Fletcher Marketing PR, and I'm joined as always by my colleague and friend, Fletcher Senior Strategist, Mary Beth West. Hey there, Kelly. It's great to be here with you today. Well, it's good to see you and uh, would be remiss if I didn't mention your recent birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> Welcome to the 50s. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, I guess that's the headline, right? <laughs> yes, that's the headline. We had a fabulous birthday party extravaganza weekend in Nashville a few weeks ago. So just wanted to wish you a happy birthday on the podcast. Oh, well, it was terrific. I'm so glad that you were there. And, you know, it was just so memorable with Tanya Tucker being there. Thanks for posting some of those photos online. And it was just so much fun and just a great memory with a lot of friends and colleagues who date way back to my Nashville years some yeah. time ago. So it was all good. <laughs> Some good PR folks there too. So, well, Mary Beth and I have an important podcast for you today as we'll be discussing the state of journalism in 2022. And that's probably, you know, enough content for a podcast in and of itself, a whole entire new podcast. But love it or hate it, journalism impacts the way we get our information and it's changing rapidly and it's more and more of a hot button for the public. Absolutely, it is. And of course, these past few years have been very tumultuous, I would say, in the news industry with, uh, of course, shrinking newsrooms has been an issue for, frankly, for decades now. There have been so many macro issues going on in how consumers use information, consume information with the shift to more digital platforms and just the impact on traditional news gathering. But of course, COVID has wreaked havoc on the way so many newsrooms have had to operate through that crisis. That was certainly a global crisis. And there's also this issue of the eroding trust in journalism and in news media, with many people labeling journalism as fake news, whether there's any merit to that at all or not, regarding things like political bias or other issues like that. So it's become quite a maelstrom, actually, of issues and so on the public relations side, it certainly makes our work cut out for us, doesn't it, Kelly? Well, yeah, and it's a 24-hour news cycle, and we have to have tools in our industry to be able to do our job, which brings me to how I met today's guest. We're honored to welcome Greg Gallant. He is the co-founder and CEO of Muckrack. In full disclosure, Fletcher Marketing PR is not a Muckrack client yet, but we're leaning in that direction. <laughs> We've had some really bad experiences with PR platforms that we use to reach the media. Most recently with Meltwater, if you're interested, you can hop on over to the Fletcher blog and read about our experience with Meltwater, which led me to Muckrack and learning more and more about the company and about Greg and his team. And today we're going to focus on the positive. So our team at Fletcher has found Muckrack to be a really positive thought leader. So it's content. The content that they produce has been very helpful to us. And they recently released their annual report on trends and insights 
into this ever-changing journalism industry. Yeah, and I think that's a wonderful contribution to the communications industry, certainly the public relations side of things. And I, I truly appreciate the research and the information that is being shared by Muckrack. Muckrack, just to give a little bit more definition for our listeners, it is a software platform that is used by journalists and public relations professionals. Journalists can update their portfolios to highlight their work and provide information about what stories they're looking for. And then at the same time, PR professionals can then use the database to find journalists to pitch to. So, you know, keeping that relevancy factor there. Gregory Gallant has had an incredibly successful career, certainly in his leadership role of Muckrack, but certainly predating that as well. It is difficult to narrow his bio down to just a few things as he is so accomplished in our industry. He is a frequent speaker and a writer on topics related to social media, marketing, PR, entrepreneurship, remote work, and journalism. He has presented at South by Southwest, Harvard Business School, and the International Journalism Festival, and his columns have appeared in Fortune, Forbes, and Business Insider. So along with his companies, plural, Greg has been cited in and interviewed by numerous media outlets, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Associated Press, Pointer, PR News, and PR Week. And also, Business Week named him one of the best young tech entrepreneurs, and Built-in named Mugrack one of the best remote companies to work for in 2022. So a very nice recent accolade there. A lifelong entrepreneur who founded an internet business at age 14, Greg launched the Venture Voice podcast in 2005 and has interviewed some big names on that show. In fact, I was just watching one of them just recently here. So Greg previously worked as an associate producer at CNN. He received a BA in philosophy from Emory University. So this is just such an honor to have him joining us to discuss this very important issue in our industry. Yes, Greg, welcome to Misinterpreted. Great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm honored to be on. Well, you're another one of the people who went from a career not related to journalism or PR at all, <laughs> philosophy. I was, a, I was a music major with a second degree in communication. And so how interesting. I would love to hear a little bit more about your career path and how you went from that degree to being a journalist to an entrepreneur in the media space. Sure. I've done a lot of 180s in my career. So I'd actually started my first business when I was in high school, building websites for companies, this was in the late 90s when I had to convince companies they needed a website. So I, I had that experience before college where actually I knew I, I loved business and I was really excited to get into the business world. I went to college and I was dead set on studying business. I get to college, I take one philosophy course, found it really enjoyable. And then I ended up taking a bunch of business courses and, and I just felt like having done a business that the business classes weren't really practical, at least at, at the undergrad level. Whereas my philosophy classes, they, no one in the philosophy department purported that it'd be useful or would get you a good career. But I found the classes to be interesting. So I'm like, okay, so I switched from business, majored in philosophy and actually found in my career, I think the philosophy degree has been extremely useful, more useful than anything I had learned in a business class, because 
as I'm sure you know, and this is why the, the PR profession is so important, but once you get to any meaningful scale, the number one job of being an entrepreneur or a CEO is communicating ideas, boiling down what's happening in the world and coming up with kind of a way to explain it and a, a way to position your company to be relevant. And that's really what philosophy is all about. Right. If yep. you want to learn accounting or bookkeeping, you can always pick up a book or take a course. That that stuff you can learn on the job pretty easily. But the, the writing, the critical thinking, I found to be super useful from philosophy. Right. Coming from a performing arts background and living in New York in my 20s, I think the most valuable skill that I learned was you're constantly selling yourself, right? So in PR, we're constantly selling. We're selling stories. We're selling ideas. We're selling strategies, and then we have to prove how they work. So once you are not afraid to do that anymore, and it doesn't matter who you get in front of, it just it makes it so much easier. Right. I, and I think to that point, it's so interesting in public relations how there's such a synthesis between the technical aspects of the business world and then the creative side of things and really trying to mesh those two together. I also love really in, in the way that Muckrack has been able to capture, I think, a, a need within the communications industry for various sectors of communications professionals to understand each other and to understand what their mutual needs are. And for example, with this state of journalism report, it, it's such a great tool for public relations professionals to be able to understand the thinking and the mindset and the day-to-day -day challenges of what's going on in newsrooms. And I'd like to just ask the question, I guess, uh, kicking things off from my standpoint is you're having released this State of Journalism 2022 report. It is a survey of more than 2,500 journalists. And I wanted to get a sense for what some of the big changes are, Greg, that you and your team have seen in the survey from year to year and what maybe some of those trends might portend for the industry that we're working within? Yeah, it's a great question. And this, this is a survey we've been doing for several years now. One thing that differentiates Muckrack is we're really the only platform that has an offering for journalists where we give journalists this free portfolio page. Most of them will love to claim it and then use it to kind of show off all their work. So we have this great relationship with journalists. And in doing it this year, one of the big takeaways was that journalists are busier than ever. And they were busy last year. Last year, they said they covered three beats on average. This year, it's four beats on average. So I think it just goes to show that the journalists are working harder than ever. And I think that means for the PR profession that we all need to step it up because these journalists are always kind of changing what they're covering. They have four beats. Maybe they have to cover one beat today because of what's going on in the news that's different from what they would have done yesterday. So I think it shows like how essential it is to do research on journalists before pitching them, to look at their very latest work, at their very latest tweets, which is why, why we put that all on the profile pages right away to maybe make smaller media lists, more targeted media lists, and put more effort into each pitch because it's hard to understate just how busy these journalists are. At the same time, though, there's some silver lining. We did find that 23% of journalists said they're more likely to respond to pitches this year than last year. So that was a pleasant surprise that you know, journalists are 
we find broadly like the journalists like getting pitched because you know it helps them do their job. They need to find out about good stories. Yet we see so often on Twitter, they're complaining about pitches they get because most of the pitches aren't relevant, aren't targeted, aren't thoughtful. So I, I think that shows just the huge opportunity that's out there for PR people that are willing to put in the work and, and do a, a thoughtful, targeted pitch that, that takes the workload of journalists into account. Your journalists, the portfolio that they're able to put online, that's just been transformational for us and just being able to look at that and really dig down into what they're most interested in, what they've written about recently. And so one of the reasons, a, a problem that I think exists among PR platforms or media database platforms is that you just can't send a blanket pitch anymore and you, you can't send it through the platform. I mean, you really have to do the work to make it specific, personal, make sure there's a great subject line to get them to open it. And so I just wonder about trust between PR people and journalists. So they're more likely to look at one of our pitches this year. (laughs) And we know that fake news has been a big term over the past five or six years. And the audience loyalty and trust has been eroding over the past several years. Did the survey tell us anything new about where the public is when it comes to trusting the media? Yeah, we looked into it from a journalist's perspective because they hear about it, right? They're on Twitter. They hear pretty quickly from readers and can sense the tone from the feedback they get. And we found from the journalist's perspective, audience trust is improving compared to a year ago. And we found nearly a third of journalists claim trust has increased over the past year. And I think we have seen, you know, again, it's not a great place maybe uh, looking at a 10 or 20 year time horizon. But relative to a year ago, it seems like the sense from journalists is that that's been getting getting better, moving to a more positive place. That's good. Yeah, it has. And of course, social media has continued to grow in the journalism world and beyond. Certainly our world in PR is dominated by it. And Greg, you have extensive knowledge of that sector. What are some interesting findings you've learned about the changing landscape of social media in the midst of everything else? Yeah, so it's just been fascinating for us. We, we actually started as a platform for journalists before we ever became a PR platform with all the, the functionality we have, media database being one of them. And it's because we noticed journalists were using social media and the news was moving faster than ever. So when we launched Muckrack, gosh, I guess about a dozen years ago now, it was originally as a tool for journalists. And that's a trend that has only gotten stronger. So we see journalists are using social media a lot for every aspect of their job. One thing that's interesting about journalists is they view Twitter is far and away their number one social network for their job, for their profession. Right. I think if you surveyed most other professions, they'd say LinkedIn. And if you asked them what social media they were using outside of that, they'd probably say Instagram or TikTok. But journalists just love Twitter. They use it. It's their watering hole. They're on it all the time. It's kind of how they see what their colleagues are talking about. It's how they often interact with their sources. It's how they get their own work and news out there. So I think it's a mindset shift that P 
people have to get into both in the PR profession and even I think anyone who cares about how their organization is portrayed in the news, I think it's something that CEOs have to look at too, which is even if you're thinking, if you're thinking about like, how do I reach my, my end audience? The answer might not be Twitter. But if you're thinking, how do I reach journalists who will help me reach my audience? The answer is Twitter. And, and we just find that's strengthening every year that journalists just keep saying they're going to use Twitter even more. There's no, no sign of it pulling back. So Greg, does that apply to soft news and feature news too? In our agency, we work with a lot of feature writers. And so are you finding that they use Twitter as much as the hard news journalists do? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't have the stats in front of me, but I would venture to say that Twitter is still their dominant social network. They might not use it as much as the hard news journalists because there's not that pressure to know like, hey, what's happened in the last five minutes on this story? They have a, right. a wider time horizon, so they might not be quite as addicted, but they still use it. And still, you know, if they're covering celebrities, if they're covering actors, if they're covering people in the arts, those people are on Twitter too. It's kind of become the place public personas use to get their word out there. So we see it is very big with them. I should mention there are some journalists who don't use Twitter and they still get muckrack profiles and many of them will will lean on their muckrack portfolio even more if they don't use Twitter, but overwhelmingly they're on Twitter. And what else did you find with this state of journalism report when it comes to journalist preference for how they like to be pitched so they're on Twitter. Do they mind being pitched on Twitter? I mean, I know I've sent Twitter pitches before. And you know, what, what do they want from us as PR people when it comes to pitching? So we found overwhelmingly they want the pitch by email, in a one-on-one email. And that throws a lot of people because it's like, oh, wait, all the journalists are on Twitter, but they don't want to be pitched on Twitter. <laughs> but for the most part, email, even though it's overwhelming for them, it is it is their workflow. Like most of us, we probably have our our system where we're archiving things in the inbox. We're probably not getting an inbox zero, or at least I have yet to see inbox zero. But we have some kind of system there. We can forward emails if it's not for us. So they want it by email. That said, I think Twitter is is an important piece of the pitching process. So first of all, before you pitch the journalist, you should follow them on Twitter. They care a lot about their following count. If you know this pitch is coming for a while, like weeks or months before you pitch them, follow them, interact with them on Twitter, try to be helpful, answer their questions, tweet out their articles and at mention them, show them that you're a reader of theirs. And that way they're going to, they're going to remember your, your name. And then when you pop up in their inbox, they're going to know you. Another piece I found to be very effective. And another thing we found in the survey is most journalists are okay with at least one follow-up to a pitch. Mm-hmm. A lot of PR people are scared, like, hey, I sent the pitch, they didn't respond. Does that mean you know, they spent 10 minutes reading it and rejected me and they're just not telling me? No, they're, they're just busy. They might've been under deadline. So journalists say they're okay with a follow-up. I find a lot of times it's good to follow up on Twitter to mix up the mediums, but there's a couple caveats. One is by default, you cannot DM someone on Twitter, direct message someone on Twitter, unless they follow you. Some journalists change that setting so anyone can DM them. 
But first of all, if you are going to follow up on Twitter, make sure you're doing it by the DM. Because you tweet at them publicly, they're going to go to your Twitter account and they're going to see you tweeted at 10 other journalists and they're going to be pissed. So you don't want to give it away. with The a- world is going to see your pitch. <laughs> exactly. So, so it's got to be by DM. And you've usually got to earn that right because they have to be following you and they hopefully got to know who you are. So that's where I think it's so important to do that relationship building over Twitter before you're going to send the DM. But once you have that relationship, I've done that where we... We email journalists, we don't hear back. I DM them on Twitter. And sometimes even I'll text them if we're on a texting basis. Right. And I don't put the pitch there. I just say, hey, we sent you an email last week. Did you get it? And usually they're like, oh, thanks so much for telling me I had a crazy week last week. I'll go back now and respond. I want to ask you about the gender news gap. So I'm a member of Women in PR. It's an international trade organization. It's all about advancing the careers of female PR pros. And they recently released a study, and it was UK-based, but I'm assuming that's probably similar in the U.S. I've heard stories that women are disproportionately experts in the room, but we're more likely to have a college degree or have a high-level title. But when it comes to being looked to, to be a subject matter expert, we're still outnumbered four to one at conferences and five to one when you're cited as an expert in the media or interviewed or quoted in the media. So I think this is really interesting. I didn't realize there was that huge of a gender news gap when it comes to being an expert. What do you think is going on? I mean, is this something that Muckrack has looked into? You're a thought leader in the PR media space. And is there anything that you're doing to address the gender news gap and make sure that women are heard from on your platform as much as men? Or more. Yeah, I couldn't agree more that it's it's a big problem out there and the data is pretty disheartening. I think even worse, and something we see in our surveys is that one of journalists' favorite group of people to, to quote are CEOs, and only 15% of Fortune 500 CEOs are women. So I think you know it's both a, a challenge for journalists to really push and how they think about who they quote. I think it's something that PR departments can do a lot more in thinking, thinking about who they put forward. And of course, you know, there's a lot of many deeper problems that I don't have all the answers to, but hopefully, hopefully can figure it all out on this podcast. In terms of what we're doing and what we think about it, first of all, we, in our own panelists, 70% of our panelists from the webinars that we host and the content we put out, have been female in the last year. So we're making a big effort to make sure that we're representing the the right voices in this industry and getting getting the right names out there. And I think in the PR profession itself, we know that typically everyone, it's no secret that within the PR industry, it's majority female people in the profession. But then we see, you know, at the leadership level, that often doesn't always play out. So I think it's important, even in the PR world, as you're doing, uh, it's important to get those voices out there. We've also partnered with the uh, PRSA and the Museum of Public Relations to showcase their women-focused events and initiatives. And for Women's History Month this year, we featured women identifying journalists on our Twitter feed all month long. Got great engagement on that. And you know, one other thing that we think about a lot is just 
kind of the demands of long hours and PR and how people can balance family life. And that, that affects both men and women, you know, anyone who wants to focus on raising a family. And I think COVID exacerbated it without the access to childcare. We're really big, as I, as I learned, uh, as we were chatting before we started recording, uh, as you are too, on remote first or distributed workforces, because we think it gives people a lot more freedom when they cut out their commute and can have control over their own schedule. It makes it easier to succeed at their profession, not just keep doing their job, but to actually succeed and rise while also raising a family. So not only is Muckrack fully remote and we let our employees live wherever they want, but also when you're fully remote, it there's a big difference between just telling people, hey, look, we're going to have this office with all the executives, but if you want, you can work from home. Because what does that mean? Well, all the executives are there and if you don't show up, you're not going to get fired, but you're probably not going to get promoted. So we really focused on being, you know, remote first, having it. So our, our exec team is spread out all over the country. Our team spread out all over the country and the world. And we actually launched the work remotely forever pledge. So we got dozens of tech companies to join. It's just workremotelyforever.com and collectively all those companies, which include some pretty big remote first companies like Envision and Automatic, the maker of WordPress that represent over 7,000 employees collectively have taken this pledge. So not only are they saying, hey, you can be remote for us now, but that we're never going to force you into the office. So if you take a bet on working for our company, you don't have to worry that in two years we're going to decide, hey, guess what? That remote work experiment during COVID was cool, but we just launched this beautiful new headquarters and you have three months to relocate here, you're fired. Right, so right. we think that this this is an opportunity. It won't solve everything, but it's an opportunity to give workers out there and ambitious people who want to climb their ranks a lot more flexibility to do so. Right. So Greg, CEO to CEO, I'm curious, what are you doing to create and maintain culture? Because this is not new for Muckrack. I mean, you've been remote only for years. So for those of us who are fairly you know, new at working virtually and trusting the whole virtual workforce, like what do you do to retain culture? Yeah, there, there's a lot there. And first of all, welcome to the remote work revolution. And it, it sounds like you're, <laughs> you're, you're already thriving. And so I'm sure you have some tips for me too. And we're, we're all learning as we go along. I find there's a lot of different nuance to it. And I think a lot of people never really thought about a lot about what they were doing in the office. And when you're remote, you have to be a lot more deliberate about things like getting people together and being explicit about your values. One thing I found that's really important is to look a lot at what kind of activities you want your team to do. And identify and agree with your team on what kind of KPIs, key performance indicators you're going to pay attention with them. And think a lot more about output rather than thinking about hours worked. I think we all know how it used to be. And, and I think it was unfortunate even when everyone's in an office that it, it's like, hey, this person, they, they show up early and they stay late. And when I walk by, it looks like they're working hard. So they must be a good employee. But really, you have no idea what that person was doing, like just seeing them at their desk 
They could have been, uh, you know, just playing games all day, or they could have been actually working, but maybe they're just not very good at it and they're, they're not efficient. And meanwhile, I think we all know, you know, there might be that employee who left at 4.30 to go pick up their kids. And everyone's like, oh, that person left at 4.30. Can you believe it? But they might've had the best output of anyone and no, no one cared. You know, they just saw them walk out of the office. So I think even for the people who are listening who have offices, they should do this. But the great thing about being remote is you have to do this, is, is figure out, you know, what's the behavior you want to have happen from everybody, from every role, be very explicit about that, come up with ways to measure that and judge people based on that rather than hours worked. I think some people have made the mistake of trying to do the hour work thing in the remote. I know a lot of companies are like, hey, we're going to do a Zoom at 8.30 a.m. every day and at 7 p.m. every day, you know, where the subtext is like, you better be working 8.30 to 7. I even heard of one company where they're like, we're going to all be on a Zoom together all day. So it's going to constantly have everybody have the Zoom, you know, going so they could watch each other work. That's horrible. Yeah, it sounds awful. What talented uh, person would want to work at that company. But it shows you, I think, just the fixations everyone's had on how many hours is everyone working rather than thinking about the output. And I know you asked about culture, and there's a lot where I can get into about kind of how you maintain a certain culture. But I, I, I think part of culture is that, are you going to have performance management culture? Or are you going to have a culture that's based around who spends the most time in the office or how similar are you to your employees? And how much are you going to chat about the things that you have in common? Yeah, there's a lot of wasted time. Yeah, and in the agency business, it, it's such a challenge because that's the revenue driver is the billable hour. So what you're saying is so correct in terms of looking at outputs and looking at big picture and more strategic things. But when you're caught up in a business model where, you know, the almighty billable hour is in large part the revenue driver. And of course, a lot of agencies are looking at very different and more effective ways to bill for their services. And we should all be looking at that for sure. But yeah, it's a real conundrum for us in the PR business. Death by the billable hour is what I call it. <laughs> right. So when we look at how COVID-19 has had a permanent effect on the journalism industry, and just thinking about some of the data that you have on that, Greg, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so we see that the question everybody was asking early on is like, can I pitch anything except for a COVID story? Right. And when we surveyed at the beginning, the answer is no, you really, you know, in 2020, you had to pitch a story that related to COVID. Otherwise, that's just uh, ignoring the elephant in the room. Now we see that it's not everything, but it's still the major story. Now we did this survey before the the war in, in Ukraine, so now there's two major stories. But we've seen consistently in in these surveys, journalists generally want to write stories that connect to some big trending story in the news. And I think this is a disconnect, especially with with companies out there. And then it's often the PR profession that needs to translate you know, what the journalists are looking for to what, what corporate execs want to get out in the news. But that I find a lot of companies come at this from the fact that like, hey, we've got this awesome product. We all worked so hard on it. Now the media should write about it. And what we hear from these journalists is like, tell me how what you're doing connects to something big in the news. How does it connect to COVID? 
How does it connect to supply shortages? How does it connect to inflation? How does it connect to the war? And so it's rare that you can just have your news in a vacuum anymore where you're just like, we launched this great thing. A lot of the challenge out there now is to look at what's happening in the news, to figure out the zeitgeist of, of journalists and what they care about, and then find a way to connect your story, the story that you want to get into the news to those big prevailing stories, and then you know draw that connection for the journalists so that it makes it very easy for them to cover you rather than it feeling like a distraction from their beat. Right. Great advice. So I'm going to ask you to get out your crystal ball and tell us where you think the industry is going to be two or three years from now. I'm not even going to go five years. Everything's changing so fast. You know, what do you see on the horizon in the next two or three years that is important for PR people to know, or where do you see things changing? I think one trend we've already seen play out, I think this is going to be a really powerful trend, is that more and more journalists are going to go from just writing articles for their employer to also having a podcast, maybe with with their employer or, or independently, and also having a newsletter and producing on more different platforms which I think will change things because it changes how you think about how you pitch. It's not just, do you want to quote this person in a story? It's, will they be good on a podcast like we're doing now? Will, are you going to give them a nugget that you can get in their newsletter? And of course, there are new podcasters coming out there that are more successful than some legacy journalists. I'm sure you've already been pitched on having guests on your podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so very quickly, you, you've gone from being the pitcher to the, uh, the pitchee. And for a lot of people, if they want to reach your audience, there might not be a better place to go than your podcast. might be better than going to a trade pub. Mm -hmm. So that shift, I think, from just thinking about how do I pitch for text articles on the web to how do I pitch for podcasts? How do I pitch for newsletters? How do I pitch for new mediums that are being developed is going to be a huge trend. We already see it if you look at any major... CEO, celebrity, book author, head of state even, when they want to get a message out there, their media tour now includes going on podcasts, talking to newsletter writers. So these new kind of groups of people you need to treat kind of like journalists, but they're, they might identify as podcasters or newsletter writers is a huge trend and something, something we're really focused on with a lot of our newest features in Muckrack too. Yeah, it would be. So I take that to mean that you're going to further build out your podcaster database for pitching. 100%. Yeah, we already have tens of thousands of podcasts on there, most of the top podcasts, and that'll be expanding even more as time goes on. It's a good strategy to keep in mind, especially for brands that maintain a podcast and, and just using that as an owned media platform where they can really control that message. Greg, you've given us so many terrific insights today. And as we kind of wrap up our discussion, I was going to ask if there are any last words of wisdom for our listeners that you would recommend, particularly as we continue in the year ahead. I think it's to make your media list shorter. It's kind of counterintuitive because on one hand, it's like these journalists are so busy. Media is getting fragmented. That does not mean I need to just pitch more people because the hit rate will be lower. But I think really what we saw in the data is like journalists want good pitches. They say more than ever that they want those 
good insights. They're still struggling for what are good stories to write about. But because they're so busy, you can't afford to clog their inbox with bad pitches. And not only that, now that journalists have Twitter, they love tweeting out these screenshots of bad pitches. (laughs) So I think it's just a better time than ever to like really do your research to target which journalists and podcasters and newsletter writers you want to reach out to. And then by coming up with a shorter, more targeted list, you can spend a lot more time building relationships with those journalists and podcasters using Twitter, using other forms of social media, and then sending them very customized pitches so that they'll be much more likely to respond and write about it. Right. It's quality over quantity. Right. That's a great way to sum it up in a tweet size. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Greg, thank you so much. I know you're very busy running your company and I appreciate you spending time with us today and sharing your expertise with our listeners. And I personally really appreciate Daniel and Linda Muckrack and your team there that I've had the pleasure of interacting with. They're all such lovely people. Wonderful. I'll pass that on. Okay. Well, they better listen to the podcast, right? (laughs) Good point. Yeah. Well, huge thanks to you, Greg. And listeners, thanks so much for supporting the Misinterpreted PR podcast as well, produced by Kelly's public relations firm, Fletcher Marketing PR. And listeners, you can follow Greg on LinkedIn and at Twitter handle at Gregory and follow Fletcher Marketing PR at Twitter handle Fletcher PR. You can also follow Kelly at Twitter handle KD Fletcher and me at Mary Beth West. And would love for you to follow the Twitter hashtag misinterpreted and that's MS interpreted with the capital PR. And everyone been great being here with you today. Hope you learned something new and thanks for tuning in until next time. Thanks for joining us on Misinterpreted, Public Relations Demystified. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at FletcherMarketingPR.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time.